Good morning, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I feel like I've already said that. Uh, we'll be in uh, Romans chapter 5 this morning. If you want to start turning there, in your pew Bibles, that's on page 886. Uh, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. <laughs> family, doesn't, uh, family doesn't explain everything about us, but it does explain a lot. In uh, my family, uh, all of the guys like to drink coffee, and we like to have lots and lots of books. So everybody, my, all the guys, my father, my father, and his father, we all have bookshelves full of books, and we're constantly collecting books. We all take our coffee black. So that's part of, part of being in the Pulse family is we have too many books, and there's never enough books. Uh, so that's something about my family. There's probably things in your family that define you, things that you've inherited from your father or your mother or from your mother's mother or your grandparents that have kind of permeated generation after generation of this. This is kind of who our family is. You know, when we think about families, uh, one family that kind of epitomizes this is the television show family, The Addams Family. If you're old enough to remember that show or you've watched reruns of that show, it's a, a family of people who every day is Halloween. Uh, they're constantly wearing black. They love everything that's morbid and spooky. Uh, they creep out their neighbors, and for them, it's totally normal. They're a very normal, happy family, but everything is spooky and Halloween-themed, and everybody else is kind of uh, disturbed by what they, what they wear and what they dress and what they eat and what they do, and that's the, the premise of the show. For the, you may not be able to relate to the Adams family. It's probably not Halloween every day at your home, but if you're a human being, you're born into the family of Adam, and the truth is, that nothing is quite normal in Adam's family. The effects of sin and death are in everything we say and do. Now, Pastor John has been leading us through Genesis chapter 3, and we literally learned how our first parents disobeyed God's law and brought sin into our world. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, the Apostle Paul explains just how terrible the consequences of Adam's sin are for us and about the glorious opposite work of Jesus Christ to redeem us from Adam's curse. Look with me, if you would, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning who were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the results of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will be for those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteous reign and life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification in the life of all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. Now where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We see beginning here in verse 12 that Paul states the devastating consequences of Adam's sin for the human race. Through one man, sin entered all the world. By taking the forbidden fruit and joining the serpent's rebellion against God, 
Adam not only became guilty of sin himself, he became the gateway through which sin invaded the world to which we live. Now, because God is a just judge, he has decreed that the consequences of sin is death. And so in verse 12, Paul says, sin entered the world and death through sin. Just as sin was released on the world, so was death falling hot on the heels of sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. What a tragic story. Death has spread to everyone because all have sinned. When Adam and Eve were created, God made them very good. They were the crowning glory of God's creation, made to enjoy his holy presence and friendship with the expectation of living forever in God's very good world. But when they sinned, and because of that sin, we are born as sinners. We enter life spiritually dead and physically dying. These two realities are so important that we understand. We all are very aware that we are physically dying. But the fact that we are physically dying is a reminder and a lesson that we are spiritually dead as well. We come into this world spiritually dead. This is a, a, a two-pronged curse in that sense. Our, our spiritual condition is naturally dead, and our physical bodies are constantly decaying and growing old and dying as well. So as we, as we feel one physically, we can see the spiritual implications of the, of the spiritual condition. So we see in this passage here that Paul addresses the fact that God delivered the law to Moses, that there wasn't an, but there wasn't an explicit list of commandments from God that people could either keep or break before there. So you look in verse 13 here, where it talks about this time period between the fall of Adam and Moses receiving the law. Apart from God's revealed law, people still have a sinful nature. We are still subject to God's just judgment, but that judgment is not as strict to those who don't know what they are doing is wrong. Nevertheless, even before the law was given, the descendants of Adam were sinners, and the proof is that they, like us, were subject to death. One of the things you're going to notice as John continues to preach through Genesis is that everything after Genesis 3, the theme of death is constant. We're going to see in Genesis 4 the first murder. In Genesis 5, we're going to see the genealogies. And how does everybody's story end? They die. They have kids. The next generation goes on, and then they pass away. Over and over again, we're going to see wars and murders and death after death after death permeate the human race. The human race now gets defined almost by our constant failing and our constant being under this curse. And we can, we can see that this presence is there. We see the constant sin of the different generations, and we see the effect of that sin, which is the death that permeates every generation afterwards. Death is reigning. And sadly, these wars and these deaths don't just stay in the first part of the Old Testament. They're going on even to this day. Like you, I've been watching the news this week and, and been grieved and angered as I've seen you know, the Russian tanks and the airplanes begin this invasion. A new war has sprung up. And this is only the, the latest war in a history of wars for our race. There, it seems there is always been wars, and now there's yet another war that has come upon uh, the nation of Ukraine. And imagining what it would be like to be brought under the rule of a foreign power through sheer forces is hard to do. But, be, but because of Adam, all of mankind suffers a more brutal rule than that of Vladimir Putin. We are under the reign of death. Spiritually, we are born alienated from God and totally unable to do anything to redeem ourselves. Physically, we are born as mortals, subject to disease and death. And even as we grow, we begin to age. And no matter how many vitamins we take, how much exercise we get, sooner or later, we will all die. It's worth noting, too, that in Genesis 3, the curse isn't just that we die. 
It's that we return to dust. I want you to think about that with me for a second. Because when the Bible says we return to dust, it doesn't just mean that our bodies rot in our graves or that we're cremated and turned into dust rapidly. What it's saying is that everything that we do as a civilization is also turned to dust. Everything that represents humanity eventually becomes dust. Our great monuments, our great buildings eventually crumble to dust. Our, our books and our pages and our scrolls eventually crumble to dust. Our statues eventually get torn down. You know, you might become rich. You might decide to put your name on the side of a building at a university. You know, you, so-and-so, you know, pulse uh, study of music or whatever. But eventually I'm going to pass away. The grant money's going to run out. And some other rich guy's going to come along and say, I want to have my name on the building. So they'll scrape my letters off and replace them with somebody, with his name or her name. And your name will eventually be forgotten. You know, and th think about how many people you know throughout history who have a great, wonderful reputation. And, you know, maybe you have a favorite historical character. You probably do. I know I do. And as you think about all these historical characters, you can think about, okay, they did this and they were able to do that. But you don't really know them. You don't know what they were like. It's just like a list of things they did when they were born and when they died is the, kind of the bookends. But their, their legacy is slowly, slowly forgotten, and they go from, you know, a biography to a paragraph to a name on a ledger, and slowly everybody's name crumbles to dust. Everything that we have in our human's forms eventually goes to dust. And this, this is part of this curse. This is what it means that death is reigning. But why, you may ask, does the one wrong action of Adam result in sin and death and dust for everyone? How did Adam's sin spread to all of us? Well, I want to give you three ways that the curse has fallen upon all of us. The first is by example. Children imitate everything around them, especially their parents. And ever since Adam, they have only ever had sinful examples to follow. If you're a parent, I guarantee you will see this happen. Your children are watching you. They're watching how you're living your life. How they are learning how to be good and how to be bad from you. Parents, we have a great responsibility for how we speak, how we act in front of our children. And in that responsibility, every single one of us has failed. No, there's no perfect parents. Our parents weren't perfect. We're not perfect parents. And, and we can see even, I can see in my own children, my own sins being manifest in them and them learning to sin in the same way I do. And, you know, as a parent, that grieves my heart. And I can see in my own life the ways that I've picked up the sins of my parents, who picked up the sins of their parents. And we see this, this line of sin being passed down. No matter how hard we try, our children will learn our sin habits. And second, we see that sin is spread to us by nature. From the first day of your life, sin is at work in your very being. David confesses this fact in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul declared that in Ephesians 2.3, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And sadly, you can see it unfold in every person's life. You don't have to teach children how to lie, to steal, to rebel against authority. You can be the best parent in the world, but your children will still learn and find ways to sin. If, if, if you don't teach them, they'll invent it on their own. And finally, because we are Adam's descendants, we share in the guilt of his sin. As the very first man, the ancestor of all mankind, Adam was our representative for all of his descendants. In God's eyes, the moment Adam sinned, we all sinned. From the day you were born, from the moment you were conceived, you stood guilty of the sin and worthy of death just by coming from the family of Adam. Now, when you hear that, that may sound unfair. We say, why, wait, 
why does Adam get to represent us? We didn't choose to be born of the family of Adam. We didn't choose him as our representative. I, I don't remember holding a vote before I was born and saying, all right, I, all right who wants to pick Adam as our, as our representative? And it can seem unfair. But to that question of how is this fair, I would give you three answers. The first is that whether we like it or not, we as human beings are deeply connected to each other. We aren't just independent individuals, and God doesn't see us that way. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. Human beings look separate because when you see them walking about, you see them walking about separately. But then we are made that we only see only the present moment. If we could see the past, then of course it would look different. For there was a time when every man was part of his mother, and earlier still a part of his father as well. And there was part of his grandparents. If you could see humanity spreading out in time as God sees it, it would look like one single growing thing, rather like a very complicated tree spreading out over the earth. Every individual would appear connected with every other. We are all connected in Adam by our family. The second thing that I, we would say is that let's not be too quick to think that we would have made a different choice from the one Adam made. If Adam freely chose to rebel against God, odds are pretty good that you and I would have done the same in his place. We don't get to hold ourselves to a status to the, the status of, you know, if I had been back there, I would have done stuff differently. How would you have done stuff differently? How would you know what you know now if you were back then? We would have made the same mistake that Adam made. And third and most important, I think, is the fact that God has created us in such a way that all of us could fall under the sway of sin and death through Adam would seem to be bad news, but it sets the stage for much better news than we could have dared hope for. You see, by one act of disobedience, Adam brought sin and death upon his descendants. But in doing so, he becomes a pattern and a type for the second Adam who was to come. Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. So if we do not have Adam as a representative, if we have to stand on our own feet, then that makes it impossible for us to be represented by the second Adam, which is Jesus. So what seems at first is bad news and maybe unfair even really becomes the method and the means and the, the legal way that God is able to rescue us through the death of Jesus Christ. By his one act, he can redeem us because by one act we were put into sin. Read with me 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Here we see it. Like Adam, Jesus Christ transformed the future of untold millions who would come before him. But Paul is quick to point out that in every other way, their legacies could not be more different. But the free gift is not like the trespass. The first reason why the legacies of Adam and Christ are different is the nature of their actions are different. Adam obeyed and command, Adam disobeyed the command of God and took for himself what did not belong to him. Why, Jesus obeyed the command of God the Father and gave up what did belong to him, his own life. Adam greedily grabbed, but Jesus graciously gave. And all, those who, all these opposite actions produce opposite effects. Adam's theft makes us guilty and brings us to death. But Jesus' gift of mercy makes life available to all of us. Look with me at verse 16. And the free gift is not is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following may trans many trespasses brought justification. So the work of Adam and Christ have the opposite effect 
on us in the courtroom of God's justice. The word justification has the word justice in it. It's a legal term. There's this understanding that God is a just God. He's not going to hand wave our sin away and say, yeah, you did your best. He is looking down and seeing our sin. And when he sees our sin, he can only reach the verdict of guilty. But the work of Christ on behalf of those who believe in him is much greater than the legacy of Adam. So because, so because then despite of your guilt in Adam, despite the sin that contaminates your heart, despite the many sins that you or yourself have committed and even will commit, if you are in Christ, the judge of the earth can bring down the gavel and declare not guilty, and that changes everything. What we see in this passage with justification is that we can legally be made right with God. We can be declared righteous because of Christ's actions. Look, with, look at verse 17 now. For if because of one man's transgression, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In verses 12 and 14, we saw that because of sin, all of mankind came under the reign of death. But now for those who have received the abundant grace and mercy of Christ, for those that have been declared not guilty in God's courtroom, we are no longer prisoners to the reign of death. No, we have been given new life in Christ. We have been transferred to the, from the domain of death to the kingdom of life. In fact, Paul says that those who are in Christ will reign in life. Not only do we belong to the kingdom of life instead of the kingdom of death, but we've been adopted into the royal family to become rulers of the kingdoms ourselves. Ephesians 2.19. So we are now not just dead, not just guilty, but now we are declared righteous, declared innocent, and adopted by the judge and brought into his household as heirs. What, what a wonderful counterbalance we see between these two. So we see that although Christ follows in the pattern of Adam, he's much more greater than Adam. His actions were far greater than Adam's, and the justification he obtained for us is greater than the condemnation that was ours in Adam's. And the future he secures for us is more dazzlingly bright than the one we expected in Adam was dark. The doom that was hanging over us all is nothing compared to the glory of Christ. So in Adam, we move from uh, innocent to guilty, and from Christ, we move from guilty past innocent to righteous, to adopted into the Father of God. You see how much bigger his actions are than Adam's are, why he is called the greater Adam. I hope that makes sense to you and delights your heart. And you, you see Christ completing the work, not just bringing us back to neutral, not just you know, giving us a, a, a past to, so we can work off our debt, but restoring us and, and allowing us to be declared righteous and to be declared sons of God. Brothers and sisters, what gratitude we ought to feel as we go about our lives. Do you really know, do you realize how much more we have received in Christ than we ever lost in Adam? Maybe you get passed over for a promotion you deserved at work, and that stings. But is that compared to being the prince or princess in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe you're running out of paychecks before you run out of month. That's a tough challenge. But have you thought about the riches of Christ's own righteousness that have been credited to your account? Maybe you're suffering from bad health, and you're feeling the reality that this body isn't going to hold up forever. That's a painful fact that we all have to face. But Christian, the eternal life that's ours in Christ cannot be cut off by physical death. We are looking forward to resurrection with Christ and everlasting life and wholeness in the presence of God. But Paul has more to say about the abundance of Christ's gift to us. Look with me at verse 18 now. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads us to justification and life for all men. 
And then he clarifies here in verse 19. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So there are now again, why we were all born into one camp of, of sinners. There's now those who are sinners and those who are righteous. There's now a separation. It's not that Christ dies and everybody magically gets into the kingdom of heaven. But there is now a way for us to be made right before God. There is now a hope of salvation. So not only does the grace of God through Christ transform our position before God and move us from sinners to righteous, an eternal future, but it also gives us a new nature and a new identity. Every one of us was born a sinner in Adam. But those of us who have been born again, who have received God's gracious gift through Christ, are no longer just sinners. We also have righteousness. You, Christian, are righteous. Oh, I know that we have all committed sins. You still have Adam's sinful tendencies to contend with, but you have a new nature in Christ, a righteous nature that loves what is good and hates what is bad. Listen, if you would, to the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Now, this may raise a question in your mind of, who is the real me then? And this is a question that our culture is constantly asking. Well, who am I then? Because if, if, if I am a sinner and I've been uh, damned to hell and God has rescued me and saved me and redeemed me and filled me with the Holy Spirit, and does, does that mean I'm just a, a robot or you know, I, I just need to like, let go of myself and let God control me? Do I still have an identity? You know, if, if I am sinful, can I even know who I am? And to begin to wrap my head around these questions and to think through this really a serious issue and a question of our day, who are we even? I want to give you some, some practical advice. Uh, when we think about who we are, we are first and foremost made in God's image. We have a soul. We have an eternal existence. But God has also given us a physical body. We have biology. We have neurology. We have chemicals going on in our body. We have hormones. We have all these things that affect us. And it's important to understand that both our souls and our bodies have been affected by sin. There's the sin that is in your own life, the sins that you have committed. There's the sins that have been committed against you. And there's just the sin that's in this world shaping and forming you because we're in this world altogether. And all of these things lay on who you are and who your personality is and can sometimes feel like they're, they're crushing and dissolving you almost. So you're, you can hardly see yourself when you look in the mirror because you have all of the hurts and hang-ups from your past and all the ways that people have mistreated you and the ways that you have let people down and hurt other people and the guilt and the shame, the anxieties, the fears, it all piles up. And it's so easy for our culture to begin to assign the sin and the fear and the shame and the guilt and everything else. That just becomes who I am. I am an, I am an addict or I'm a recovering addict or I'm, you know, I'm anxious all the time, or I'm a depressed person. All these things that begin to shape our identities, we find our identity in our sin. And the thing that I would encourage you with this morning is as we talk about the righteousness, that de declaration of righteousness, that's awesome, that's right. Okay, great. God thinks that I am justified in heaven, and when he looks at me, he sees my righteousness. Yes, amen, that's exciting. But when I look in the mirror and I see all of Jared's sin and all the ways Jared has screwed up and all the ways that people have screwed up and hurt me, you know, who am I underneath all of that? And the beautiful thing to see, we, we see here, he says that we, we have righteousness for all eternity. 
And I want you to think about what it means when, the, when in Revelations it says that every tear is wiped away. It doesn't say in the Bible that we go to heaven and then we spend all of hev- heaven in rehab. It says that our tears are wiped away and then we enter into heaven. So when we are made righteous before God, when we're justified, God begins to sanctify us, to work in us, to undo the effects of sin on our lives. But when we go before God into heaven, we are glorified. And that means we are fully healed. There is healing on this earth. There's healing in this life. I hope you believe that. But when we get to heaven, we are fully healed. And all of that sin is pulled away. Both the sins we have committed and had committed to us, all the sins that the world has indoctrinated us and convinced are normal, all of that will be removed. And we will be our true selves. We're not just absorbed into the Holy Spirit or we become just, you know, this this blank slate that God brings into heaven. We're not just a trophy on the wall. We are our true selves when we reach heaven in relationship with Jesus and with each other, walking and rejoicing and living an authentic life. So as as you hear the the world constantly talking about living authentically and being true to yourself, that's not something we should attach to all the sins and hurts and hang-ups that are in this life, but realize that underneath all of that is a beautiful soul created in God's image. God has made each and every one of us in his image, and he has made us to be restored back to that beautiful self. He will remove everything that has kind of clouded that picture for us. So it's interesting, too, that in heaven, he doesn't take away our physical bodies. It's not like, all right, your soul's going into heaven, and I'm going to remove all your earthly physical hurts and hang-ups. We'll have a restored body. Our our physical ailments will be removed. Our, Our brain that is become addicted to coffee or sugar or whatever it is or attention or man-pleasing, all of that will also be healed. And we'll stand in the presence of God with a soul that has been cleansed of sin, with a body that is no longer under the, the, the stain of sin, and we'll be dressed in white robes and we will be cleansed. And that is, that is the beautiful hope here that, that, that is being pointed to in Romans when he says in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. And I want you to hear those time differences. Do you hear the time differences? Sin reigns till death. How long is that? Probably less than 100 years. Short amount of time. But grace reigns. How long? How long does righteousness reign? Eternity. All of eternity. Imagine the biggest book you've ever seen. You know, one, one page is your life, and every other page is all eternity. You know, in the grand scope of things, our life is very short and very important and very matter. Like, like, whether or not we follow Christ, whether or not we do things is, is important. Like, you know, the, that, that prologue chapter is very important to the story. But the full story is all of eternity. And there's this beautiful picture that why, why death, why the curse gets a page The rest of the book is God's, and the rest of the book is righteousness. And that's exciting and peaceful for us as we we look at the world and the chaos in the world and wars and diseases and everything else that's going on. And we can find hope and peace in in these last two verses. Let me read them one more time. Verses 20 and 21. Now where the law came to increase the trespass, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that death and sin will all be defeated? 
we can have our hope in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, if the grace of God is powerfully working in your life, you have been declared not guilty before God. You have been justified. The righteousness of Christ has been made yours. Your hope of eternal life with God is secure. It's not just that you're right now, but you will be right forever. And you will be made right. Your eternal hope lies with God. It is secure. And it is all through Jesus Christ, our Lord, brothers and sisters. What could we ever be afraid of? When we have a Lord who has given us such a gift, such a hope, such a future, can we not trust him with everything in our lives? I hope and pray that we will. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll have a moment of silent reflection. Father, thank you, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for his work on the cross, for our salvation. Thank you, Lord, that we are not just justified, but we are sanctified and glorified. Thank you that we have an eternity of hope ahead of us. Even as we have suffering in this life, we know that all of eternity will be marked by righteousness. And we, we thank you, God. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know righteousness, does not know the hope of being found in Jesus, being legally declared right, not having to work on a, a pedestal or not having to try to do it themselves, but trusting in a Jesus who said it is finished. Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty, that they would taste and see. Lord, help us to be light. Help us to be salt. Help us to live in a way that reflects the hope we have to a world that is in desperate need of hope. Bless the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.